Arthur Pink, Spiritual Growth, and uh, this is number two, but we're on chapter number three. Uh, it's necessity. It's necessity. We commenced the last chapter by pointing out that none can possibly make any progress in the Christian life unless he first be a Christian, and then devoted the remainder to defining and describing what is a Christ, what a Christian is. <clears throat> it is indeed striking to note that this title is used by the Holy Spirit in a twofold way. Primarily, it signifies an anointed one, Christ title, an anointed one, subordinately denotes a disciple of Christ. I mean, the disciple, uh, the name Christian, I mean. Thereby, they have brought together in a truly wonderful manner both the divine and human sides. <clears throat> Our anointing with the Spirit is God's act, wherein we are entirely passive and are becoming disciples of Christ as a voluntary and conscious act of ours, whereby we are freely surrendered to Christ's lordship and submit to his scepter. <clears throat> it is by the latter that we obtain evidence of the former. None will yield to the fresh to the flesh repentant terms of Christian discipleship, save those in whom a divine work of grace has been wrought. But when that miracle has occurred, conversion is as certain to follow as a cause will produce its effects. One is made a new creature by the divine miracle of the new birth, desires and gladly endeavors to meet the holy requirements of Christ. <coughs> Here then, is the root of spiritual growth, the communication to the soul of spiritual life. Here's what makes possible Christian progress. A person's becoming a Christian, first by the Spirit's anointing and then by his own choice. This twofold signification of the term Christian is a principal key which opens up to us the subject of Christian progress or spiritual growth. For it needs to be contemplated from both the divine and human sides. It requires to be viewed both from the angle of God's operations or from that of discharge of our responsibilities. The twofold meaning of the title Christian must also be borne in mind under the present aspect of our subject. For on the one hand, progress is neither necessary nor possible, while on the other, in another very real sense, it is both desirable and requisite. <coughs> God's anointing is not susceptible of improvement, being perfect, but our discipleship is to become more intelligent and productive of good works. Much confusion has resulted from ignoring this distinction, and we shall devote the remainder of this chapter to the negative side, pointing out those aspects in which progress or growth does not obtain. Number one, Christian progress <clears throat> does not signify advancing in God's favor. The believer's growth in grace does not further him one iota in God's esteem. How could it, since God is the giver of, the, of his faith and the one who has wrought uh, all our works in us, Isaiah 26, 12. <clears throat> God's favorable regard of his people originated not anything whatever in them, either actual or foreseen. God's grace is absolutely free, being the spontaneous exercise of his own mere good pleasure. The cause of its exercise lies wholly within himself. The purpose and grace of God is that good will which he had unto his people from all eternity. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. <coughs> and the dispensing grace of God is but the execution of his purpose, ministering to his people. Thus we read uh, James 4.6 God giveth more grace, yea, he giveth more, gr more grace. 
It is entirely gratuitous, sovereignly bestowed, without any inducement being found in its object. Furthermore, everything, everything God does for and bestows on his people is for Christ's sake. It is nowhere a question of their deserts, but of Christ's deserts and what he merited for them. As Christ is the only one by which we can approach the Father, so he is the sole channel through which God's grace flows unto us. Hence we read of the grace of God and the gift of grace, namely justifying righteousness by one man, Jesus Christ, Romans 5.15. And again, the grace of God which is given you by, by Jesus Christ, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 1.4. The love of God toward us in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8.39. He forgives us for Christ's sake, Ephesians 4.32. He supplies all of our need according to his riches and glory by Jesus Christ, Philippians 4.19. He brings us to heaven in answer to Christ's prayer, John 17.24. Yet though Christ merits everything for us, the original cause was the sovereign grace of God. Although the, uh, This is Thomas Goodwin. Quote, Although the mercies of Christ are the procuring cause of our salvation, yet they are not the cause of our being ordained to salvation. They are the cause of purchasing all things decreed unto us, but they are not the cause which first moved God to decree these things unto us. End of quote. The Christian is not accepted because of his graces, for the very graces, as their name connotes, are bestowed upon him by divine bounty and are not attained by any effort of his. And so far from these graces being the reason why God accepts him, they are the fruits of his being chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And decretively, Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, blessed, blessed with all those spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. Settle it then in your own mind once for all, my reader, that growth in grace does not signify growing in the favor of God. This is essentially a, po a papish popish delusion and though creature flattering it is horribly Christ it is a horribly Christ dishonoring one and this is one of the this is a great problem with the federal vision theology is very similar to Roman Catholicism by merging this concept of being covenantally faithful and that and that and this achieving justification on the final day which is just another form of Roman Catholicism and that's why we should oppose the federal vision tooth and nail. <clears throat> when the Father announced concerning the incarnate word that this is my beloved Son, not with whom, but in whom I am well pleased, he was expressing his delight in the whole election of grace, for he was speaking of Christ in his federal character as the last Adam, as head of his mystical body. The Christian can neither increase nor decrease in the favor of God, nor can anything he does or fails to do alter or affect to the slightest degree his perfect standing in Christ. Yet let it not be inferred from this that his conduct is of little importance or that God's dealings with him have no relation to his daily walk. Yet avoiding the Romish conceit of human merits, we must be on our guard against antinomian licentiousness. As the moral governor of this world, God does takes note of our conduct in a variety of ways makes manifest his approbation or disapprobation. Psalm 84.11, no good thing will he hold from them that walk uprightly. 
Yet to his own people, God says, Jeremiah 5.25, your sins have withholden good things from you. So too, as the father, he maintains discipline in his family. And when his children are refractory, he uses the rod. <clears throat> Psalm 89.3-33. Special manifestations of divine love are granted to the obedient, John 14.21 and 23, but are withheld from the disobedient and the careless. <clears throat> Number two. Christian progress does not denote that the work of regeneration was incomplete. Great care needs to be taken in stating this truth of spiritual growth lest we repudiate the perfection of the new birth. We must repeat here in substance what was pointed out in the first article. When, when a normal child is born into this world, naturally the babe is an entire entity, complete in all its parts, possessing a full set of bodily members and mental faculties. As the child grows, there is a strengthening of his body and mind, a development of his members, and an expansion of his faculties, with a fuller use of the one and a clearer manifestation of the other. Yet, no new member or additional faculty is or can be added to him. It is precisely so spiritually. <clears throat> the spiritual life or nature received at the new birth contains within itself all the senses, Hebrews 5.14, and graces. And though these may be nourished and strengthened and increased by exercise, yet not by addition, no, not in heaven itself. Ecclesiastes 3.14 I know that whatsoever God doeth it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. The babe in Christ is just as truly and completely a child of God as the most mature father in Christ. <clears throat> Regeneration is a more radical and revolutionizing change than glorification. The one is a passing from death into life, the other an entrance into the fullness of life. The one is a bringing into existence of the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, Ephesians 4.22. The other is a reaching into the full stature of the new man. The one is a translation into the kingdom of God's dear son, Colossians 1.13. The other, an induction into the higher privileges of that kingdom. The one is the begetting of us into a living hope, 1 Peter 1.3. The other is a realization of that hope. At regeneration, the soul is made a new creature in Christ, so that the old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, 2 Corinthians 5.17. The regenerate soul is a partaker of every grace of the Spirit, so that he is complete in Christ, Colossians 2.10. And no growth on earth or glorification in heaven can make him more than complete. Number three. Christian progress does not procure a title for heaven. The perfect and indefeasible title of every believer is in the merits of Christ. His vicarious fulfilling of the law, whereby he magnified and made it honorable, secured for all, in whose stead he acted the full reward of the law. It is on the all-sufficient ground of Christ's perfect obedience being reckoned to his conduct that the believer is justified by God and assured that he shall reign in life. Romans 5.17 if he had lived on earth another hundred years and served God perfectly, it would add nothing to, this, his, to his title. Heaven is the purchased possession, Ephesians 1.14, purchased for his people by the whole redemptive work of Christ. His precious blood gives every believer, believing sinner the legal right to enter the holiest, Hebrews 10.19. Our title to glory is found in Christ alone. 
of the redeemed now in heaven, it is said, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day, day and night in his temple. Revelation seven fourteen and 15. It has not been sufficiently realized that God's pronouncement of justification is very much more than a mere sense of acquittal or non-condemnation. It includes as well the positive imputation of righteousness, as James Hervey so beautifully illustrated it. When yonder orb makes his first appearance in the east, what effects are produced? Not only are the shades of night dispersed, but the light of day is diffused. Thus it is when the author of salvation is manifested to the soul, he be brings at once pardon and acceptance. <clears throat> Not only are our filthy rags removed, but the best robe is put upon us, Luke 15, 22. And no efforts or attainments of ours can add anything to such a divine ornament, adornment. Christ not only delivers us from death, but purchased life for us. He not only put away our sins, but merited an inheritance for us. The most mature and advanced Christian is not to plead before God for his acceptance in the righteousness of Christ, and nothing but that, and nothing added to it, as is perfect title to glory. And that's, once again, that's something that the Federal Vision people should read, because it contradicts their theology. <clears throat> Number four, Christian progress does not make us meet for heaven. Many of those who are more or less clear on the three points considered above are far from being so upon this one, and therefore we must enter into it at great, greater length. Thousands have been taught to believe that when a person has been justified by God and tasted the blessedness of the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, that much still remains to be done for the soul before it is ready for the celestial courts. A widespread impression prevails that after his justification of the believer, the believer must undergo a refining process of sanctification, and that for this he must undergo, <clears throat> and that for this he must be left for a time amid the trials and conflicts of a hostile world. Yea, so strongly held is this view that some are likely to take exception to what follows. Nevertheless, such a theory repudiates the fact that it is the new creative work of the Spirit which not only uh, capacitates the soul to take in and enjoy spiritual things now, John 3, 3, and 5, but also fits it experientially for the eternal fruition of God. And once again, we're reminded of Romanism in the Federal Vision, and there are a few Puritans who write carelessly who sound that way. One of that that those laboring under the mistake mentioned above would be corrected by their own experience and by what they observed in their fellow Christians. They frankly acknowledge that their own progress is most unsatisfactory in them. And they have no means of knowing when the progress is to be successfully completed. They see their fellow Christians cut off apparently in very varied stages of this process. If it is said that this process is completed only at death, then we would point out that even on their deathbeds, the most eminent mature saints have testified to being most humiliated over their attainments and thoroughly dissatisfied with themselves. Their final triumph was not what grace had made them to be in themselves, but what Christ has made them to be unto, him, unto them, but what Christ was made to be unto them. If such a few as the above were true, how could any believer cherish a desire to depart and be with Christ? Philippians 1.23 While the very fact that he was still in the body would be proof, according to this idea, that the progress was not yet complete 
to fit him for his presence. This is really good stuff. But as it may be asked, is there not such a thing as a progressive sanctification? We answer, it all depends on what is signified by that expression. In our judgment, it is one which needs to be carefully and precisely defined. Otherwise, God is likely to be grossly dishonored and his people seriously injured by being brought into bondage by a most inadequate and defective view of sanctification as a whole. There are several essential and fundamental respects in which sanctification is not progressive, wherein it admits of no degrees and is incapable of an augmentation. And those aspects of sanctification need to be plainly stated and clearly apprehended before the subordinate aspect is considered. First, every believer was decretively sanctified by God the Father before the foundation of the world. Jude 1 also Ephesians 1. Second, he was meritoriously sanctified by God the Son in the redemptive work which he performed in the stead of and in the behalf of his people, so that it is written, Hebrews 10.14, by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Third, he was vitally sanctified by God the Spirit when he quickened him unto newness of life, united him to Christ, and made his body his temple. If by progressive sanctification he meant a clearer understanding and fuller apprehension of what God has made Christ to be unto the believer and his perfect standing and state in him, if by it he meant the believer living more and more in the enjoyment and power of that, with the corresponding influence and effect it will have upon his character and conduct, if by it he meant a growth of faith and an increase of its fruits manifested in a holy walk, then we have no objection to the term. But if by progressive sanctification he intended a, a re-rendering of the believer more acceptable to God, or making of him more fit for the heavenly Jerusalem, then we have no hesitation in rejecting it as a serious error. And by the way, those who teach the erroneous view, the federal vision, Roman Catholicism, uh, they completely destroy all assurance of salvation. They, they destroy assurance because the more you know yourself, the more you study the Bible and the more the Holy Spirit works in you and the more you get to know yourself, the more you're dissatisfied with yourself, the more you realize what a rotten bum you are and that you're not anywhere near what you should be. And I would suggest if you get a chance, read Calvin's statements right before he died and also Jonathan Edwards, two of the godliest men who ever lived. And uh, it's amazing what they said about themselves. You would think they were great sinners. <clears throat> Not only can there be no increase in the purity and acceptableness of a believer's sanctity before God, but there can be no uh, addition to the holiness of which he became the possessor at the new birth. For the new nature he then received is essentially and impeccably holy. The babe in Christ dying as such is as capable of a high communion with God as Paul in the state of glory. Instead of striving after and praying that God would make us more fit for heaven, how much better to join with the apostle in giving thanks unto the Father who hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Colossians 1.12 And then seek to walk suitably unto such a privilege and dignity that is for the saints to possess their possessions. Obadiah 17 The other is to be robbed of them by the thinly disguised Romanism. Before pointing that out, in what the Christian's meetness for heaven consists, let us note that heaven is here termed an inheritance. Not an inheritance. Now, an inheritance is not something that we acquire by self-denial and mortification, nor purchased by our own labors or good works. Rather, 
It is that to which we lawfully succeed in virtue of our relationship to another. Primarily, it is that to which a child succeeds in virtue of their relationship to his father, or as the son of a king inherits the crown. In this case, inheritance is ours in virtue of our being sons of God. Peter declares that the Father hath, 1 Peter 1.4, begotten us unto a living hope, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away. Paul also speaks of the Holy Spirit witnessing with our spirit that we are the children of God. And then he points out, Romans 8.16 and 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If we inquire more distinctly, what is this inheritance of the children of God? The next verse, Colossians 1.13, tells us, It is the kingdom of God's dear Son. Those who are joint heirs with Christ must share his kingdom. Already he has made his kings and priests unto God, Revelation 1.5. And the inheritance of kings is a crown, a throne, a kingdom. The blessedness which lies before the redeemed is not merely to be subjects of the king of kings, but to sit with him on his throne, to reign with him forever, Romans 5.17, Revelation 22.4. Such is the wondrous dignity of our inheritance. As to its extent, we are joint heirs with him, whom God hath appointed heir of all things. Hebrews 1.2 Our destiny is bound up with his. Oh, that the faith of Christians would rise above their feelings, conflicts, and experiences, and possess their possessions. The Christian's title to the inheritance is the righteousness of Christ imputed to him. In what then consists his meekness? First, since it it be meetness for the inheritance, they must be children of God, and this they are made at the moment of regeneration. Second, since it is the inheritance of saints, they must be saints, and this too they are the moment they believe in Christ, for they are then sanctified by that very blood by which he has forgiven, they have the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 13.12. Third, since it is an inheritance in light, they must be children of light. And this is also, this also they become when God called them out of darkness into his marvelous light, first Peter two nine. Nor is it that characteristic only of certainly specially favored saints. Ye are all the children of light, 1 Thessalonians 5.5. 5. Fourth, since the inheritance consists of an everlasting kingdom, in order to enjoy it, we must all have eternal life. And that, too, every Christian possesses. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, John 3.36. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.26. Are they children in name, but not in nature? What a question. It might as well be supposed they have a title to inheritance, yet not be without meekness for it, which would be saying that our sonship was a fiction and not a reality. Very different is the teaching of God's word. It declares that we become his children by being born again. John 1.13 And regeneration does not consist in a gradual improvement or purification of the old nature, but the creation of a new one. Nor is becoming children of God a lengthy process at all, but an instantaneous thing. The Almighty Agent is that is of it is the Holy Spirit, and obviously that which is born of Him needs no improving or perfecting. The new man is itself created in righteousness and true holiness. Ephesians four twenty two. And certainly it cannot stand in need of progressive work to be wrought in Him. True, the old nature opposes all the aspirations and activities of the new nature. And therefore, as long as the believer remains in the flesh, he is called upon through the Spirit to mortify the deeds of the body. Yet in spite of the painful and weary conflict, the new nature remains uncontaminated by the vileness in the midst of which it dwells.
That which qualifies the Christian to make him meet for heaven is the spiritual life which he received at regeneration. For that is the life or nature of God. John 3, 5, 2 Peter 1, 4. That new life or nature fits the Christian for communion with God. For the presence of God, the same day the dying thief received it, he was with Christ in paradise. It is true that while we are left here, its manifestation is obscured. Like the sunbeam shining through the opaque glass, yet the sunbeam itself is not dim, though it appears so because of the unsuitable medium through which it passes. But let that opaque glass be removed and it will be at once appear in all its beauty. So it is with the spiritual title of the Christian. There is no defeat whatsoever in the life itself, but in the manifestation is sadly obscured by the mortal body. All that is necessary for the appearance of its perfections is deliverance from the corrupt medium through which it now acts. The life of God in the soul renders a person meet for glory. No attainment of ours, no growth in grace we experience can fit us for heaven any more than it can entitle us to it. And just to, just to be uh, clear here, um, it would be a little more proper to say the imputation of the righteousness of Christ makes us fit for heaven and the possession of the Spirit is the gift that flows from that because the work of Christ that saves is objective to the sinner. The work of the Holy Spirit that regenerates is subjective and is connected or flows from that perfect work of Christ. So I just want to be careful here because he says a couple things that are a little confusing and can be interpreted as as if uh, receiving the Spirit is how you're saved and receiving the Spirit is a consequence of being saved. <clears throat> if the regeneration of Christians be complete, their effectual sanctification be effected. If they are already fitted for heaven, then why does God still leave them here on earth? Why does he not take them to his own immediate presence as soon as they be born again? Our first answer is there is no if about it. Scripture distinctly and expressly affirms that even now believers are complete in Christ, Colossians 2.10, that he is perfected forever them that are sanctified, Hebrews 10.14, that they are made meet for inheritance of, of the saints in light, Colossians 1.12, and more than complete, perfect, and meet, none will ever be. As to why God generally, though not always, leaves their babe, the babe in Christ in this world for a longer or shorter period, even if no satisfactory reason could be suggested, that they would not invalidate to the slightest degree, what has been demonstrated. For what any truth is clearly established, a hundred objections cannot set it aside. <clears throat> However, while we do not yet pretend to fathom the mind of God, the following consequences are more or less obvious. By leaving his people here for a season, uh, opportunity is given for, number one, God to manifest his keeping power, not only in the hostile world, but sin still indwelling believers. Two, to demonstrate the sufficiency of his grace, supporting them in their weaknesses. Three, to maintain a witness for himself in a scene which lieth in the wicked one. Number four, to exhibit his faithfulness in supplying all their need in the wilderness before they reach Canaan. Number five, to display his manifold wisdom unto angels, 1 Corinthians 4, 9, Ephesians 3, 10. Number six, to act as salt, preserving the race from moral suicide by the purifying and restraining influence they exert. Number seven, to make evident the reality of their faith, trusting him in sharpest trials and darkest dispensations. Number eight, to give them an occasion to glorify him in the place where they dishonored him. Number nine, to preach the gospel to those of his elect yet in unbelief. Number ten, to afford... 
<coughs> excuse me, number 10, to afford proof that they will serve him amid the most disadvantaged circumstances. Number 11, to deepen their appreciation of what he has prepared for them. Number 12, to have fellowship with Christ to endure the cross before he was crowned with glory and honor. Before showing why Christian progress is necessary, let us remind the reader once more of the double signification of the term Christian, namely, an anointed one and a disciple of Christ. And how this supplies the principal key to the subject before us, intimating its twofoldness. His anointing with the Spirit of God is an act of God wherein he is entirely passive. But his becoming a disciple of Christ is a voluntary act of his own wherein he surrenders to Christ's Lordship and resolves to be ruled by his scepter. Only as this is duly borne in mind shall we be preserved from error on one side as we pass from one aspect of our theme to another. As the double meaning of the term Christian points to both the divine operations and human activity, so in the Christian's progress, we must keep before us the exercise of God's sovereignty and the discharge of our responsibility. Thus, from one angle, growth is neither necessary nor possible, and from another, it is both desirable and requisite. It is from this second angle we are now we are not going to view the Christian setting forth his obligations therein. Uh, modern theologians discuss this by using the terms definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. Or the Puritans would say initial sanctification, and then they would speak of progressive sanctification. But what he's teaching here is very, very important, because the greatest error that has plagued professing Christians throughout the history is this idea that you have to do something to be saved. And he's completely crushed that in this first, uh, in this chapter, on its necessity. Let us illustrate what has been said above on the twofoldness of the truth by a few simple comments on a well-known verse. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Psalm 90, verse 12. First, this implies that our fallen condition, we are wayward at heart, prone to follow a course of folly. And such is our present state by nature. Second, it implies that the Lord's people have had a discovery made to them of their woeful cause and are conscious of their sinful inability to correct the same, which, uh, which is the experience of all regenerate. Third, it signifies an owning of this humiliating truth, a crying to God for enablement. They beg to be so taught as to be actually empowered. In other words, it is a prayer for enabling grace. Fourth, it expresses the end in view, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom, perform our duty, discharge our obligations, conduct ourselves as wisdom children. Grace is to be improved, turned to good account, traded with. We all know what is meant by a person supplying his mind to his studies, namely that he gathers his wandering thoughts, focuses his attention on the subject before him, concentrates thereon. Equally evident is a person supplying his hand to a piece of manual labor, namely that he gets down to business. He sets himself to the work before him, earnestly endeavoring to make a good job of it. In either case, there is an implication in the former that he has been given a sound mind. In the latter, he possesses a healthy body. And in connection with both cases, it is universally acknowledged that one ought to so employ his mind and the other his bodily strength. Equally obvious should be the meaning of and the obligation to apply our hearts unto wisdom. That is, diligently, fervently, earnestly make wisdom our quest and walk in our ways. Since God has given a new heart at regeneration, it is to be thus employed. If he has quickened us unto newness of life, then we ought to grow in grace. 
If he has made us new creatures in Christ, we are to progress as Christians. Because of this, uh, because this will be read by such widely different classes of readers, and we are anxious to help all, we must consider here an objection. For the removal of, we will quote the renowned John Owen, quote, It will be said that if not only the beginning of grace, sanctification, and the holiness from God, but the carrying on of it, and the increase of it also, be from him, and not only so general, but that all the actings of grace, and every act of it, be an immediate effect of the Holy Spirit, then what need is there that we should take any pains in this thing ourselves, or use our own endeavors to grow in grace and holiness, as we are commanded? If God worketh all himself in, him, in us, and without his effectual operation in us, we can do nothing. There is no place left for our diligence, duty, or obedience. Answer number one. This objection we must expect to meet with all at every turn. Men will not believe they have a consistency between God's effectual grace and our diligent obedience. That is, they will not believe what is plainly, clearly, distinctly revealed in the scriptures and which is suited under the experience of all who truly believe, because they cannot it be comprehend be, it may be, comprehend it without within the compass of carnal reason. Number two. Let the apostle answer this objection for this once. Second Peter one, three and four. His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of of his that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby we are given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises, that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. If all things that pertain unto life and godliness, among which doubtless is the preservation and increase of grace, be given unto us by the power of God, if from him we receive grace, excuse, if from him we receive the divine nature by virtue whereof our corruptions are subdued, then I pray, what need is there of any endeavors of our own? The whole work of sanctification is wrought in us, it seems, and that by the power of God we therefore may be let alone and leave it unto him who, who, whose it is, while we are negligent, secure, and at ease. Nay, says the apostle, no way. This is not the use which the grace of God is to be put into. The consideration of it is or ought to be the principal motive and encouragement unto all diligent for the increase of holiness in us. For so he adds immediately, but also for this cause, in the Greek, or because of the gracious operations of the divine power in us, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, etc., verse 5. And, what's, and I'm not done with Owen yet, but this is so important because there was a huge heresy that arose in the 1800s uh, that came from Methodism, the Methodists. And it was this idea of, well, one was perfectionism, and this led to the movement which was called Let Go, Let God. And this idea that you just give, let go, and God takes care of everything, which is not the teaching of progressive sanctification. The teaching of progressive sanctification is, is the diligent use of the means of grace to grow thereby. So this teaching of Owen and Pink, of course, is just brilliant. And on the one hand, he's refuting Romanism in the Federal Vision. On the other hand, he's refuting perfectionism and uh, the idea, the stupid ideas that we don't need to work hard at our growth in grace, at our growth in sanctification. Continuing, and this is still John Owen. These objections and this apostle were very 
diversely minded in these matters. What they made an insuperable discouragement unto diligence, uh, what they made an insuperable discouragement unto diligence and obedience, that he makes the greatest motive and encouragement thereto. In other words, the fact that God enables you, the fact that the power comes from God, doesn't mean we can sit by and relax. It means the very opposite, that we should work all the more hard to make our calling and election sure. Number three, I say from this consideration it will unavoidably follow that we ought continually to wait and depend on God for supplies of his spirit and grace, without which we can do nothing. That God is more the author by his grace of the good that we do than we are ourselves, not I, but the grace of God that is with me. That we ought to be careful that our that our by our negligence and sins we provoke not the Holy Spirit to withhold his aids and, and assistances, so as to leave us to ourselves, in which condition we can do nothing that is spiritually good. These things, I say, will unavoidably follow on the doctrine before declared, and if anyone be offended at them, it is not in our power to render them relief. And then, that's the end of quote. Coming back to Pink. Coming now directly to the needs be for spiritual growth or Christian progress. This is not optional, but obligatory, for we are expressly told to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. Growth from infancy to the vigor of youth, and from the zeal of youth to the wisdom of maturity. And again, to be, at Jude 21, building up ourselves on your most holy faith. It is not sufficient to be grounded and established in the faith, for we must grow more and more therein. At conversion, we take upon ourselves the yoke of Christ, and then... His word is, learn of me, which is to be a lifelong experience. In becoming Christ's disciples, we do enter, but enter his school. Not remain in the kidney garden, but to progress under his tuition. Proverbs 1.5 A wise man will hear and increase learning. And seek to make good of that learning. The believer has not yet reached heaven. He is on the way, journeying thither, fleeing from the city of, of destruction. That is why Christian life is so often likened unto a race and the believer unto a runner. Philippians 3, 13 and 14, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark of the prize. And we'll stop there. This is, really, this is a long chapter. But this is fan, really fantastic stuff. And uh, Pink's skill in weaving together all these doctrines and making them easy to understand and practical, I think is just wonderful. The, the one heresy that has always plagued us is this, uh, federal vision in Roman Catholicism that we must do something to make ourselves worthy of eternal life and that's absolutely false. It's deadly. But the other heresy is uh, everything's a gift to God and just sit back and relax and don't do anything. You don't have to read your Bible. You don't have to pray. You don't have to bother going to church. You don't have to, you know, you're just automatically everything's going to be fine and that's a terrible doctrine. So you want to avoid those two. You want to avoid legalism and you want to avoid antinomianism. But we'll stop there. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this teaching. It is uh, both uh, edifying, but also comforting to know that Christ is our righteousness, that Christ has given us a perfect justification, and that everything we have is due to him, not, not due to us. So we thank you, Lord, for Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to us, reckoned to our account, that we have eternal life right now, in Jesus' name, amen.